This is the Worth Recovery Podcast, featuring women in addiction. Recovery podcast featuring women in sex addiction. My name is Amy. I'm your host here and the founder of Worth Recovery and the Worth Recovery podcast. I'm a sex addict and I have been sober since December 2nd of 2012. So I am really excited to bring to you today episode 50. I know, kind of crazy. I never thought 50 episodes. That just seems bizarre to me, but I'm excited to be here with you today and I have a lot of different things I want to share. First, though, let me start with a little bit of a story. One day, not not too long ago, maybe six or seven months, I was driving with my mom in the car. We were trying to arrange some sort of calendar event. I don't really remember all the details. And I said I couldn't do it on a specific date because I had therapy. You're still going to therapy, she asked me. Surprised, but she wasn't disapproving. In fact, I probably said that with a little bit more of an attitude than she did. She just said, you're still going to therapy. I answered in the affirmative, and then she asked me this question. What is the biggest, most important thing you have learned in therapy? Well, that's a really great question. I didn't even hesitate as I rattled off three of the biggest lessons that I have learned, not only just in therapy, but in recovery. She didn't really engage in discussing these ideas, as I was kind of hoping that she would, but it was a great opportunity for me to reflect on what I have learned in recovery. See, because this month, July of 2016, marks five years that I have been in recovery. Five years. Sometimes I can't believe that. It feels like it has just gone so quickly. And of course, other times I think, when will recovery ever end? When will things finally be what I want them to be in my life? I remember asking my therapist early on, when will I want to sing in the shower again? That seems a little trivial, maybe, I don't know, but it was a big deal to me then. I wanted to wake up excited about life and looking forward to the events of the day, and I connected that with singing in the shower. It seemed like forever since I wanted to do that, and it seemed also like forever until that excitement came back, but it finally did. I wanted to take a few episodes and reflect back on some of these lessons I've learned and some of the things that have worked for me to get me to five years in recovery. There are so many theories and statistics on addiction and recovery. I've heard and read statistics that say only 6% of addicts that ever enter any type of treatment stay in recovery. But some say as much as 35%. The many types of treatment, many ways people define sobriety, and the controversy over what addiction exactly is makes all of of the statistics in this area somewhat fuzzy. And that's coming from the mathematician. 
Even within my own recovery circle, I am saddened by the number of women and men that I know that can't seem to make recovery stick at all. Now, while I was in Seattle for our Worth Recovery event, I had the opportunity to reflect a little bit about my recovery with my first therapist, Dr. Erin Glade. We recorded some thoughts together about my personal recovery journey, which was kind of interesting to do with him as my original therapist, and I would like to share some of those with you today. Then, in episode 52, next Tuesday, I'm going to share some of the biggest lessons that I have learned in recovery. Not just therapy, but recovery in general. Now, before we get started with our interview, of course, I want to give a big shout out to our Worth Warriors. Thank you so much for your continued support. It's because of the support of the Worth Warriors that this podcast remains free for all women throughout the world. So thank you so much. If you have found value in this podcast, I encourage you to become a Worth Warrior. For as little as $4 a month, you can support this podcast, which supports women in recovery throughout the world. Get on the website and click the button that says join the Worth Warriors. Again, for as little as $4 a month, that's less than 50 cents an episode, you can support women in recovery throughout the world. Now, let's get started with this fun interview. I'm super excited about today's episode for a variety of reasons. One is because I'm sitting here with uh, Dr. Aaron Glade, who uh, was my original first therapist in recovery. And so, welcome. Super glad to have you. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you. This is an important week for me, this week that I'm recording this podcast. It's a five-year anniversary of my first week in sex addiction therapy. And uh, I have in my recovery literature, at the very beginning, I've written my very f- all of my sobriety dates. Mm. And my very first one was July 15th, 2011, which today is July 15th, 2016. So it's exactly five years since I had my very first sobriety date, my very first like adventure into recovery. So I've invited Dr. Glade to be here today because there are a lot of different things that I've learned from him. And I thought it would be fun to have a little bit of a dialogue about what I've learned in therapy looking back now, five years. I wanted to uh, reflect on the things that I've done over the last five years in recovery. And then also to talk to uh, Dr. Glade about some of the things that he's done with different sex addicts and the different training and experiences he has had as a CSAT therapist. Okay. Awesome. So, my very first appointment, I remember. Well, I don't know if you remember. Before we even I, get there, hang I on. remember you coming in. You I remember? remember it, and uh, you know, I, I didn't realize this was the date. Mm. I always, for whatever reason, knew it was end of July. Maybe mm. I thought it was a little later, but yeah. But I do remember you coming in, and uh, actually, I think I even remember um, the first phone call. <laughs> That's uh, what I was going to talk I don't, about. I don't know why. I just do. Um, yeah. Uh, not a whole lot about it other than you said, you know, I'm, I am I need somebody that you know, works with sex addiction or something. I don't, I don't yeah. even know if you said sex addict, but... I, yeah, no, I did. Because I, I originally, when I was looking for a therapist, um, I found a colleague of yours that was in the same office. And I was going to go see her. And I had, was looking at her bio online. And I was like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. And then there was a little tab in the top that said, our team. And I clicked on it. And you were the very first bio that came up. Your picture and your biography. And it said specialized in. And it had a list. And the very first one was sex addiction. Mm-hmm. And I was that was the first time for me that I had a name 
for my problem, like mm. that I realized that there was a name for what was happening in my life. And so I knew, I just had this like feeling like, this is it, I need to call. So I called like literally right there. I was sitting in my office at work and I closed my office door, I picked up my cell phone, I called and I remember, I think I cried on my message. <laughs> it was okay. like, um, I, I need help. Like this is, and I knew if I didn't say it right then, I wouldn't ever say it. Okay, I don't remember that part. Yeah. I do remember talking to you and, and having the, the conversation uh, briefly and setting up an appointment. Mm -hmm. um, and that when you first came in, uh, you know, you kind of, I don't remember if you spilled everything out, but started, you know, sort of, the, right. which is what a lot of people do when they first come in. It's like they stored this up for a long time. And the first three minutes, it's, you know, a lot of things just spill out, mm -hmm. you know. Um, yeah, I'm sure. One of the things you told me in that very first appointment, there were two things I remember you saying that really impacted me. One was, you can you can heal from this, and it's a three to five year process. And I I remember being a little bit resentful, like three to five years. That's a really long time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But looking back on that, it, that was pivotal for me because it set me up for the long game. Like this was not a quick fix. This was not something that in just a few months, you know, things would be like drastically different even. Mm -hmm. Just the fact, and I remember you saying that over like several times to me over that first year. This is a three to five year process. You know, people people hear that and they, they get angry or they, uh -huh. they think we're just trying to set them up because we want money mm -hmm. or we, you know, we want to we wanna have their cash cow or something. And the reality is, is that it is, right? And, and there's a reason why, because... And I, I tell people, look, you've, how many years have you been doing this, right? <laughs> 10, Decades. 20 yeah, years, exactly. you, know, you know, whatever it is that, since they were kids or teenagers. And, and I say, you know, so it's not going to change in just a couple of months. You've tried, you've probably even had times where you've been a couple of months or a year even of, of white knuckling and really trying really hard to stop. So this is not just about stopping uh, the behavior, but it's about changing the core of, of what was driving it. And, I remember just starting to work in this this uh, field or the specialty and and hearing that and recognizing it and, and but but especially realizing that the first nine months to a year of therapy is basically how do I not act out today mm. right mm -hmm. and 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 it's I mean it's not just that it's not that you're, you're always just jonesing to act out it's that I need to set up I need to learn to go to 12-step group uh, I need to learn how to make phone calls and connect with people. I need to learn how to start working the steps and and do these all these processes that that you're really setting up a different way of life. And it's about learning a lot about learning cognitive and sort of behavioral stuff without really touching a whole lot on the core issues, mm -hmm. on the deep things that that drive it because it's too soon, right? So when I years ago when I first had well, I can look back. 15 years ago and said, okay, some old clients I remember, oh, mm -hmm. that person sex had to go, that person. <laughs> and not knowing what to call it myself then and uh -huh. at that point in graduate school and professors and not knowing what to call it or what to do. But I remember the first few sex addicts that came in or people that came into my office that said, I have a sexual addiction. I remember one in particular here just waiting. The door was hardly shut before she, you know, she's bursting into tears mm -hmm. and said, she was young too, early twenties. Uh, since I was, you know, for the last six years, or since I was eighteen, or, or I, I've had this sexual addiction. I don't know what to do, and I can't stop. And to be honest, I didn't know what I was doing. Mm -hmm. I, 
I knew of Patrick Carnes and I just started to do a little bit of research into how do you work with sex addiction. I bought it, I bought uh, Out of the Shadows and, you know, and, and said, we're going to, you know, I read it myself and said, okay, we're going to go through this together and we're going to start working on this. And, and, and then of course had other clients that deal with pornography and other, other sorts of uh, forms of sex addiction. And what I realized is that a lot of what I was doing was wrong. And so I needed more training, and which is why I started the training process when I did. But mm-hmm. it was what I realized is is you can't go at so the you know, addictions are really there to keep you from having to feel and deal with the trauma or stresses in life. And if you poke at that, if you figure out and poke where it hurts, right? That was sort of your instinct as a therapist. That's what they always told me in my training when I was you know in, in school. Find out if you resolve the underlying issues, it'll go. The problems will go away. The problem with addiction is. Addiction is there to prevent you from resolving those. <laughs> right. And so, and, and so um, if you poke where it hurts, it's just going to send people back into their addiction. So at least at first, right, you, you might touch a little bit around some core issues, but generally you set up the, what I call the scaffolding around your life to help keep you sober. Mm-hmm. And once you do that, you have the, all the tools and the sobriety that go in so you can stay sober, then then actually you have the strength to then begin working on those core issues. That's generally about a year later. Some people are on the you know the longer plan, but for the most part, it, it's about a year. Yeah. And, and then you start dealing with the core issues and then you start realizing, you know, that's when those things start bubbling up now because all of the things that, that people had have there to uh, protect them, uh, those things from coming out. Mm-hmm. That's when they start coming out because yeah. I don't know if that was your experience, but well, yeah, that was definitely my experience. <laughs> um, but like that first year, I think one of the things that really worked for me was the procedural approach. Mm-hmm. You know, building that scaffolding. As soon as you said that word, I was like, oh yeah, I remember hearing that word like a million times that first year. Like understanding how to keep yourself from acting out, mm-hmm. and then and then start to deal with some of the the deeper issues now. Mm-hmm. My situation was slightly different in the fact that my dad was dying Mm -hmm. at the same time. So I came in, I mean, it was a big catalyst for one of the reasons I came in was I knew my dad was dying and I, there was a lot of unresolved anger. I mean, just a lot of stuff there. And all I could think about was acting out. Like Mm -hmm. I just wanted to dive headfirst into every acting out scenario possible. And that's why I called because I, I knew if I did that and I knew if my dad passed away with all that anger. Like, I just don't think I could have lived with myself. And so there was that big procedural approach, but then we also had to deal with some of that underlying stuff because yeah. of my dad. Yeah. So when you say procedural approach, so Carnes has what he calls the task-centered approach, mm-hmm. 30 tasks in recovery, and you're going to start at the, the start. And it, and it involves a lot of homework, uh, the sort of cognitive kind of thinking through things, trying to use that front part of your brain that mm-hmm. is your thinking, um, which does stir up stuff, but initially it's cognitive kind of stuff, learning about addiction, trying to identify what your cycle is, trying to identify um, how you're in denial, um, mm-hmm. behaviors in there so you can start identifying when you're in cycle and just all of those things that are about how do I not act out today, right? right? And so it, it involves homework. Now you were an easy client because you're an overachiever <laughs> And you do you do all your homework and get an A in everything. So you were easy. I didn't have to assign you homework and you'd come back and do it. So 
Um, it's, it's true because there are times you're like, you already did that. Okay, well, we'll we'll get to that. Let's slow down and go back to this one. But yeah, but but it's true though. I mean, the, doing homework and doing active work. It's not just talk therapy, right? There's a place for that, but for this, you really need to do some active things to really start exploring what's going on mm-hmm. and how you got to where you are. Yeah. But then it wasn't very long in, a couple of weeks in, that we were talking about your dad's dying. Um, you have these deep resentments and and uh, and you don't want your dad to die with you hating him. Mm-hmm. And what am I going to do? Mm-hmm. And, you know, we knew, we didn't know how long, but it was going to be pretty soon, right? Right, yeah. And I don't know how long it was. It wasn't even that long later, six weeks later, and you had to go out and live with them for six weeks. Or maybe it was, it was two months. It was but, longer, yeah. So we started okay. in July, and then I moved home in November. Okay. So, so it, was it was a few months. A few months, but then, and and so we, we were doing, you know, recovery stuff, as well as knowing that this thing with your dad was there. Right. Um, and we kind of talked about, okay, how are you going to, not only how are you going to stay sober when you're down there, what are you going to do to try to come to grips with and come to terms with mm-hmm. dad dying and your relationship with him and stuff? Do you remember how you did that? Uh, a lot of different things. Yeah, there mm-hmm. were a lot of different things that I did. I think one of the one of the great things that I learned from you was just that whole idea of I was not really good at holding contradicting emotions at the same time. You know, I either hated my dad or I loved my dad, and I felt like either side was a betrayal to my dad. You know, and I. I remember one of the thing, one of the assignments. It was an assignment you gave me. One of the assignments I had to do was was make a, just massive lists of all the th- reasons I loved my dad and all the reasons I hated my dad, and like put that all on the same paper and try to hold that together at the same time and learn to accept that, which was really difficult for me, mm-hmm. but something that really really helped me. Now you went home though, and once you went home. What did you do with? I'm trying to remember what else you did. Did you, did you sit there and interview him about your life? I Was did. Yeah. No. Just sort yeah. Of getting to know him. Can't believe you remember that. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah. We did some interviews. We talked about just um, particularly like his parents. One of the things um, that Patrick Carnes in that book that we did was we had to like kind of um, diagram our families, right? And talk about wow. the different addiction pieces in our families or the different trauma pieces in our families. Mm-hmm. And I particularly focused on my dad's family, knowing that, you know, he was going to pass away yeah. and going through that and like just trying to understand and then asking him questions about, you know, just the different trauma, different events of his own life, of his parents' life really gave me an appreciation for my dad in a way that I hadn't had before. I mean, just like being able to say my, my dad, sure. Was it the best situation for me? No, but my dad did absolutely the best he could. And it was light years ahead of what his parents did. Mm -hmm. And understanding that was really helped me to work through. I remember, I remember you talking about that. And uh, one of the, so there's a found one of the grandfathers, I guess you'd call him of, of the marriage and family therapy Mm -hmm. movement back in the fifties, sixties was a man named, he was Hungarian, his name was Ivan Bazermany Naj, or we just called him Naj, because right? <laughs> it was a mouthful, but he's, well, I say recently died, but probably, you know, 15 years ago, uh-huh. 10, 15 years ago now, but, um, but his approach was all about what you just described, about understanding where the generations before us came from, and understanding uh, that we all come with what he called 
through our lives, we acquire what he called destructive entitlement, and, and mm-hmm. it ends up getting played out on other people mm-hmm. and, uh, and ourselves. And um, part of uh, addressing the stuff that we have, we have to go back to our generations before us and, and understand them and what they went through, yeah. and what they experienced, so that we can now seek to understand their, their lives, their family, their, the, the good and the bad, and, mm-hmm. and eventually come to terms with who they were and where they came from. Yeah, that was a big piece of my recovery. One that I'm still working on mm-hmm. as I work through some of the issues that with my family, with my mom, with other relatives, is trying to just understand where they came from mm-hmm. and how, what they did with what they, you know, like their destructive entitlement, yeah. right? How they played that out, how that's played out in their lives and then how that's played out for me and then how I can change that. Now, going back to like our first little bit together. Um, So I, you know, in doing this podcast and now being active in the recovery community for five years, I've heard nightmare, nightmarish stories about therapists. You know, it's funny. I I hear from you and I hear from, you know, in Stacy's book. but uh, and I, Stacy's a friend of mine, but I never knew her her nightmare therapist stories and, mm-hmm. and others. Um, I've known a lot of very good therapists. Um, I've been lucky enough to to work with people that that are very good therapists. So, but I know there are people who experience the the nightmare stories. Yeah, yeah, and like I I saw before seeing you, I saw two different therapists at two different periods of time in my life for short periods of time, uh, maybe six or eight months each. <clears throat> And the first one, I never, ever approached the idea of sexual addiction or addiction in general at all. It was okay. Like, I didn't, I didn't feel like it was bad. I, I had a good experience with her. The second one, though, I tried. The second one, I tried to bring it up and uh, a couple different times. One time I remember I, I just said to her, so I used to kind of have, I used to kind of have this masturbation problem and it's kind of starting to come back and it feels a little out of control and I'm struggling with what to do about it. And I thought, okay, I'll just test the water a little bit. Right. And, uh, and I remember her telling me, Amy, you just, you don't have time for that. Like you don't have time for that in your life. You just need to stop. So when you have that desire, just picture a stop sign in your head and just stop and just don't do it. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. I just won't do it anymore, you know? And I remember walking away from that appointment. That might've been our last appointment, or maybe I went a couple more times, but I remember walking away from that appointment thinking, you, you don't get it. You, don't get it. you have no idea well, what aside this from the means fact that, in my life. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I could make a joke, but I was gonna say, it doesn't take that much time, right? <laughs> so, so um, you know, but, but yeah, I, I think part of the challenge is um, and it's still a challenge for a lot of people. It, so, I mean, you're probably describing people who are, I don't know, the other, I'm just going to assume they were relatively good therapists, right? Mm-hmm. Not the nightmare variety that, that you hear about. Um, but unless, I, and this is just my experience, because it's my it was my experience before I actually got the training and started doing my own research on things, um, that unless you have the training to understand, it's, 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 um, it's difficult to do this work, right? And, and so, so those who don't have the training, the approach, um, oftentimes don't get it. And, mm-hmm. and you know, some people kind of understand addiction. Like, yeah, I, I can see but I can understand addiction, especially if it's substance abuse because it's it's visual. You can see somebody putting something into their arm or drinking something. But the idea of 
of a process addiction is, is really difficult for people to grasp. And why can you just not stop doing what you're doing? Right. Or, or they'll conceive of it like it's just sex. If any um, attempt to pathologize or say this addiction is very sex negative and, and moralistic, and which isn't the case either. I, mm-hmm. I know many sexual addiction therapists and specialists that are sex therapists and, and very positive about sexuality. But there's nothing positive when you're stuck in a in a sexual addiction where it's mm-hmm. come bringing harm to your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, of course, the goal is healthy sexuality, but it's also healing the things that's causing you to do compulsive things that hurt you, right? And so, you know, I, my approach before was to, like I said, poke and find where it hurts and poke. And people seem to always go back to where they were they were <laughs> starting. And you know, I, I look back and I think, gosh, if you'd have come into me five or ten years before, you know, what would have happened? I probably would have gone to family of origin, right? All oh, your enmeshed in fam- enmeshment and, <laughs> and, uh, and all of that. And so kind of looked at family of origin stuff, which could have been really helpful. Mm-hmm. Tried to understand, okay, this uh, masturbation thing or things you're doing is because, you know, it's difficulty with family of origin relationships. So we got to focus on that. It probably could have been helpful, but it would have, you know, touching on that family of origin stuff would have kicked you back around and yeah. you would have probably cycled through your addictive behavior and never really been able to touch the core stuff that that was driving driving things right you would have gotten a little bit but then as soon as we touch the core you know mm-hmm. you the acting out stuff I, i'm that's just what happens whether it would have happened to you i don't know but probably it's just how it works yeah yeah i know like i think about when i say nightmare stories you know these a mm-hmm. uh, lot of the women that i speak with have like pretty difficult stories with therapists either about you know early early disclosures that you know were not done in a therapeutic setting that Mm -hmm. caused massive problems for them and their family Mm -hmm. or just you know seeing a therapist for two to three years and never being able to stop their behavior and i'm not saying that that's the therapist's fault because i think that the client has a lot to do with that but you know just just not really feeling that they're making progress or tools or, or different things like that as I was thinking about this kind of period of my life, right, five years now, and uh, reflecting back on, because I, I saw you for three years. We spent three years together. Two years I was living here, and then I moved to Utah, and one year we did over the phone, mm-hmm. right, Skype and then over the phone therapy. Mm-hmm. And so, like, what made what made us a good match, right? Why did Why did this work for me, you know, where I've seen so many others go mm-hmm. to therapists and just not be able to make that? Why is it this? Well, I the, I don't know exactly. Right. right. You might know. And I guess I would say this. The first thing is that you were ready. So there are times personality-wise that there's a personality, just sort of a good fit between therapist and client. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how to always predict that. Um, you know, but I don't know if you can. But um, I find even more than that initially, at least, it's is the client ready to change and do they come in and and are they at that point where they're willing to do anything to get where they need to go mm-hmm. um, what and, do you what do you look for in your first few appointments maybe as indicators that they are ready to change is there things specifically that you look for I mean as simple as um, when you tell them to go to get this book do they get it okay. do they get on Amazon and get it right away yeah right? Um, and do they bring it in have they already looked through and done some work or, you know, when I give them an assignment, do they do it? Mm-hmm. Um, 
do they do what you ask? I think you'd said to me before, and you probably said uh, even on this podcast, you know, I determined I was going to do whatever they told me, told me to do, right? Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I joked, you know, I told you <laughs> to stand up, hop on one leg and bark like a dog. And if, if I said, hey, this will work. I totally would you have done might it. Have done it right? <laughs> but, but it was, you know, I mean, that's, it's, you were ready. I, I told you about going to an SA meeting and you went that, that first week. And so uh, I said, this is a women's meeting, go to this meeting this time. And you did. That's amazing. And those are the things because... I, there's a few things that are really, really hard at first as a client walking in. It's always hard to be a client that makes when you make a phone call and you walk through the door of a therapist's office the first time. Getting in a car and drive into a 12-step meeting is really difficult. That even might even be more difficult because it's just sort of a surreal experience that you drive on the road saying, I'm going to be going to a meeting and saying I'm a sex addict or sexaholic or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, and, and walking in and not knowing which room or which door and hoping you don't have to ask somebody a question and hoping <laughs> you're not, you know, uh, right. it's not uncommon for people to be uh, at some meetings and as soon as they say welcome to this meeting of uh, Sexaholics Anonymous or Sex Addicts Anonymous and there's, there's sometimes somebody looks around nervously and says I'm in the wrong place. Yeah, exactly. I've seen that happen. But, um, but, uh, <laughs> Sometimes you know there's might be a, a Alan on a meeting across the hall or something. And, yeah. But um, but it's it's are they are they doing some of those things early on? They do what you ask and you say, hey, this is going to help, and they don't delay it. They don't fight against it. They mm-hmm. don't, um, those are some things. Uh, I, I always expect some level of minimization or or denial when they come in. You know, I don't. What I in my experience from you was not minimization. Not so much denial that you had a problem, not even denial about what you needed to do to, to get healthy. The levels of denial were more around things like family of origin and oh, yeah, what were some sure. of the, the issues that, that you know you bring in with you. And that comes sort of later. Well, what did you think? Is that kind of fun to listen to me talk with my original therapist? As I was listening to that, I realized I sound a little nervous as I'm talking to him. But I'm grateful for the time that he took to to talk with me a little bit about what he remembers and what I remember. There's several more minutes, probably a whole nother episode at least, about different things that we talked about that I'll bring to you um, pretty quickly here in the next couple weeks or so. But I just want you to remember that when we start, when we start recovery, we have no idea what that journey is going to look like. And, it, and it's scary and it's frightening and it's some of the hardest work that I have ever done in my entire life. But it's also been the most rewarding work that I've ever done in my entire life. And five years in, I still have a lot of work to do, but I'm excited about that work and I'm excited about the changes that I see in my life. I hope that you will continue with recovery as we continue to reflect for the next few weeks about my five years. I hope that you'll take some time to reflect about the time that you've spent in recovery, the changes that you've seen in your life, and plan on moving forward in your recovery. As always, ladies, I hope you remember that no matter what is going on in your life, no matter how far you think you've gone, no matter how you feel in this very moment, you are worth recovery. 100% worth it. I know that. Keep up the fight. Don't forget you can support Worth Recovery by being a Worth Warrior 
If this podcast has helped you even a little bit, if you think it's worth 50 cents, get online and join the movement. All the details are on the website, worthrecovery.com. Ladies, I think about you, I pray for you, and I love you. Until next time, Amy. stuff. The mission of Worth Recovery is to dispel shame and build hope in the lives of women struggling with and recovering from sex addiction. I am not associated with any 12-step group, religious organization, or therapeutic clinic. I am an addict sharing my own experiences and recovery.